Amen. You know, we believe here at Redeemer that, that worship is not just something that is, that is taught, but it's something that is caught. Uh, and so occasionally throughout the year, uh, we will have on fifth Sundays, uh, we will have all of the kids and all of their noise and all of their rambunctiousness uh, in church with us uh, because we want them to see their parents serving the Lord. We want to send them to see their parents worshiping the Lord uh, and participating in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so this Sunday morning, we will not have kids' church. We will resume kids' church next Sunday. Uh, so uh, we will uh, endure. So when the, when the kid behind you starts fussing and, uh, and carrying on, uh, just smile and know that, that they are learning more about what it means to worship uh, simply by being here and being in and amongst uh, the body of Christ as we worship this morning. Uh, so we're just going to ask for a little extra long-suffering this morning uh, as we will not have kids' church. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, if you look at the graphic this morning, uh, uh, just by show of hands, uh, how many of you have any idea uh, why there's a string tied around the finger? That's what I thought. Uh, uh, most, I, 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 I told Ashley this morning as she was searching for a graphic, I said, see if you can find a, a picture of a string around a finger. She goes, what does that have to do with anything? I said, I said, well, it used to be a saying, tie a string around your finger and it'll remind you what you're not supposed to forget about. And so, and so that, that's, that's, that's what the string around the finger is. And all of the, all of the iPhone generation says, well, we just put a reminder in our phone. And, and we, we don't have to tie a string around our finger. We just, we just tell Siri to remind us whenever we get home to, to, to take the chicken out of the fridge or, or, or whatever it may be. So uh, I, in, in lieu of an iPhone app, this, this, was, this was the iPhone app uh, for my parents' generation. So 1 Samuel chapter 7, and my mom's not in. Oh, the, there she is. I was going to say my mom's not in here to, to give me glaring looks as I say that, uh, but she walked in the door. So 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read uh, verses 10 through 17 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> Verse 10. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below as Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel and the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel, were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines so that there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all of these places. Then he returned. Then his return was to Ramah for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. 
God, as we hear your word this morning, may we be reminded of your continued faithfulness to your people. May we remember your faithfulness, and may that spur us on to faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want to kind of back up just for a few moments and pick up where we left off last week. Where we left off last week, Israel had come to the end of their rope. They were, they were at a place of desperation. They were at a place where, where they had nowhere else to turn. God had, God had pent them up with their helplessness, and Israel cries out to God because there was nowhere else for them to cry out. They had no other option. If you go back and you look at verse 8, back up to uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, and I want us to see this. The sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that He may save us from the hands of the Philistines. This is very different from their perspective and from their approach to battle in chapter 4. In chapter 4, they, they go out and they get their teeth kicked in and they come back and they say, well, well let's, let, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's, let's, let's call up our armies, let's, let's, let's get all of our weapons and we will we'll carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle and we will surely defeat the Philistines. Well, at this, point in the, at this point in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken from them. It had been returned, but, but the last time that they approached the Ark of the Covenant, 50,000 men died, so, so they weren't too keen on going and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle. Their armies had been utterly destroyed, and they were at the end of their rope, and the only place they had to turn was to God. In their desperation... They cry out to God and they ask Samuel, they said, Samuel, will you continually cry out to God? Will you please continue to cry out to God? And that, that language there in the Hebrew is, is the idea of desperation, that they are crying out to the Lord. Whenever your children are, are newborns, they, have, they don't yet know how to talk. They don't know how to tell you, Mom, I'm hungry. Mom, I'm wet. You know, Dad, I'm, I'm hurt. And so what do they do? They cry, right? And they cry and they sleep. And they cry and they sleep. And they cry and they sleep. And sometimes they cry in their sleep. And, and they, just, they just cry. And that is because they are completely helpless. And the only way for them to communicate that they need help is for them to cry. That's the idea in Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Is that Israel is continuing to cry out because they are completely helpless and utterly helpless. And when, when we have other tools at our disposal, we typically use them rather than crying out to God. When we have, and that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the greatest tragedies of the American church, of the Western church, is that we have so many tools and so many resources at our disposal that we don't need God. And so we will build these these edifices these giant cathedrals and these giant facilities and we will we will use our budgets and we will use our strategies and we will use the 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 latest marketing techniques and we'll fill our pews and we will we will expand our brand and we will do all this in the name of the gospel never once relying upon the god of the gospel we don't need god we're not desperate for god but you go to china you go to india and you go to Southeast Asia, and you go to, to the Middle East, where these people are completely and utterly desperate, 
They don't have money. They don't have resources. They don't have facilities. Yet God moves in a mighty way because they are desperate for him and they cry out to him. And Israel is at that place here in 1 Samuel. They had no other tools. They had no other resources. And they cry out. They realize that prayer is just not, it's not just a pious cop-out, but prayer is their only rational activity. Go with me, if you will, to James chapter 5. James, the half-brother of Jesus in the midst of persecution in the early church, writes this letter, James chapter 5. And he says this, and I want you to listen in these three verses how many times James exhorts the people, how many times James calls the people to pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins, and they will be forgiven him. If you look at verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Over and over and over again, James says we need to pray, we need to pray, we need to pray. He doesn't say we need to pass an offering. He doesn't say we need to form a committee. He doesn't say we need to, we need to have this strategy or we need to have this, this, this opportunity to serve. He, he, there, there's no marketing. There's no fancy fancy new gimmick what does he say pray 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 why because it is only whenever we we place ourselves in this position of helplessness that that we cry out to god with with the heart that we desperately need him and god hears his hears our prayer and reaches out and answers us so that's exactly what happened israel was desperate before god They cried out to God, and God showed up. Verse 12. So, that's where we ended last week. In chapter 7, verse 12, we see Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us, he said. And everyone is looking and they say, what in the world does Ebenezer mean? We, 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 we hear it in, we hear it in the, the, the old hymn, Come Thou Fount, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, and we think, I, I sing the song because, because I know the song, but I have no idea what Ebenezer means. How, how, many, of that, how, many, of, how many of you is right there? You say, I, I sing the song, I have, yet I have no idea what Ebenezer means. Well, I'm about to explain to you and teach you what Ebenezer means so that you will never, ever have to say, I I don't know what I'm singing. I'm singing it because it sounds good and it's the words. But today, we're going to learn what Ebenezer means. Ebenezer means the stone of help, the rock of help. That's what it means, literally. It means the stone or rock of help. And so what Samuel is doing as he raises up my Ebenezer as he builds this monument of help, what he is saying is that my God, my God is a rock, he is strong, and he has provided help. Now some scholars may argue that, that he is saying that my help is a rock, or that my rock 
is my help. Now, either or, six of one, half a dozen of another, Samuel is saying that my God is strong, that he is powerful, that he is, he is a source of strength, he is a rock, he is a foundation, and he and he alone has been my help. He and he alone has been my deliverer. He and he alone has been the person or the agent by which my assistance and my help has come from. And so, if we look at the passage, what is Samuel saying? He's saying, we tried everything to do this, to defeat the Philistines on our own. We even brought the Ark of the Covenant, thinking that that somehow we can manipulate God into acting. And whenever we were completely desperate, when we were at the end of our rope, my strong, sovereign, powerful God showed up and helped me. Now why? Why does Samuel build a monument there in verse 12? And why does he build this monument highlighting God as as their help and their aid? Well, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, there were monuments that had been set up. My wife and I just spent this past week uh, making a a semi-road trip across Texas. And my wife is in this this phase right now where she has this fascination with all of these these old cities and old towns. And every time we would go into one of these old towns, you know, you you've you've all driven through them. Maybe you've blinked and missed them, but but you drive through these towns and there's the the 1900 storefronts where it's 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 the pharmacy and the general store and the 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 bakery and and they've got them all and and most of them are closed down. But occasionally you'll drive through one of these towns and, and they'll be open. Now, they may not be the pharmacy anymore. They may be uh, you know, selling antiques out of it now, but, but it used to be a pharmacy or it used to be a general store. And oftentimes on these, on these old buildings, you'll have a little plaque. And it'll tell you, you know, in 1873, you know, uh, Jedediah Smith founded this, this uh, uh, town and they built a, uh, this was the place of the cotton gin or this was where the general store was. And they'll, they'll have a little monument, a little plaque, reminding you of what that was so that generation after generation as they come into the city or as they come into the town they will know that there was once a town here and before there was electricity before there was running water before there was uh, the internet and computers there was a town and this is how they function that's very much the same thing that God does throughout the Old Testament all throughout the Old Testament, we see, is, we see the Israelites setting up monuments. And the reason is, is because we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. Just by show of hands, how many of you were born after 1996? If you were born after 1996, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise it high, Miss. Oh, I see Omi in the back. Uh, all right, if you're born after 1996, you don't remember a time when there was no such thing as the internet. Right now, that thought, that thought just blew your mind. That at one point in time, you had to go to something called a library, and 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 you you had there was this there were these things before Google. Before Yahoo, there was these things called a card catalog. And you would go to a place called a library. And in this library, there was a bunch and bunch of books. 
and you would, you, would, you would go to a card catalog, and you would pull out the card catalog, and you would try and find the book that you were looking for, and it would have a bunch of numbers written on it, and then you would go to, you would, you would go to these stacks of books, and you would look, and you would try to find your number, and it would take you about 30 minutes just to find the right shelf the book was on. It would take you another 30 minutes to find the right book, and then you would get the book and realize it wasn't the book you were looking for, and you'd put it back, and you'd go back to the card catalog, and it took you hours to, to find anything, to do any research. But then they invented something called the Internet. And now, uh, and, and, and there was, believe it or not, there were these things called encyclopedias. And, and if, you were, if you were really an astute student, uh, you, you would have these, these set of encyclopedias in your house. And, and you would, when, it, when it came time to do a report, you would go pull the, the, if you were doing a report on the Vietnam War, you would pull out the, the V encyclopedia and you'd read all about uh, Vietnam War, and if you were really, really uh, sly, you could find a way to change the, the wording under the Vietnam War and put it in your report so that the teacher didn't know you copied it from, from the encyclopedia, because there was no thing like Google, so the teacher couldn't figure out if you plagiarized unless she had that exact same encyclopedia. And so in a way, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was easier. But I, I, I say all that to say, I say all that to say, It is easy for us to forget, even just a few years ago, even just a few years ago. I want you to listen to a couple of passages, a couple of passages that we find in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 4, Joshua chapter 4, after Israel has crossed over the Jordan River, God gives Israel some very specific instructions. Joshua chapter 4, verses 5, Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel, of the sons of Israel. And let this be a sign among you that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to to you? That you shall say to them, because of the waters of the Jordan were cut off, were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When we crossed the Jordan River, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Why do you think it was necessary for Israel to set up these monuments? Because judges tell us in chapter 2 that the generation that came after Joshua did not know the Lord, nor the ways of the Lord. Go to Judges chapter 2. I want you to see. This is why God told Joshua, make a monument there in the middle of the Jordan River, because people are going to forget. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation, the generation of Joshua, and all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, yet the works which he had done for Israel. And what happened? Verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Because the generation that came after Joshua did not know the Lord, because they did not know the works of the Lord, because they forgot what God had done, they served foreign gods they served the Baals they served the Ashtoreth they allowed the the gods of the Amorites to infect their lifestyle why because they didn't remember what God had done the enemy of faith church is forgetfulness the enemy of faith is not the devil it's not sin it's not disobedience the enemy of faith is forgetfulness We forget how faithful God has been. 
We forget what He has done for us. Most of the time, most of the time, when a husband or wife in a marriage and there's been infidelity, it is not something that happens overnight. It has been a gradual digression of affection between the husband and wife. Slowly, over time, they forget what it was like to be in love. They forget what it was. The husband forgets what it, what it took to, to acquire his wife, to woo his wife, to romance his wife, and, and, and he, he no longer cherishes her. He no longer goes out of his way to make her feel like the princess, like the prized possession that he is. The wife, over time, will slowly forget how much she loved and adored her husband. She will slowly forget what it meant to serve him, what it meant to to cherish him, to honor him. And over time, they grow apart. And then someone comes along that does cherish, that does adore, that does serve, that does show them affection, and they forget their husband or their wife. They forget that, that, that emotion. They forget what was done. The enemy of faith, is forgetfulness. And so God gives Israel very specific instructions. Set up a monument. Why? So that your children will know of my faithfulness. So that their children will know of my faithfulness. So that their children will know of my faithfulness. He tells them this when he gives them the law. After he has, after he has given them the Ten Commandments, right before they're about to enter into the Promised Land, he gives them this command in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy means the second law. God has already given them the law in Exodus, but there was a whole generation that died. And so right before they're about to leave the wilderness and enter into the promised land, God gives them Deuteronomy, which means the second law. He said, in case you forgot the first time, I'm going to tell you again. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see God explaining to them why it is necessary that they have the law, why it is necessary that they teach it to their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be upon your heart. And listen to verse 7 and verse 8. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Why? Why does God want the Israelites to talk about them in the morning, at lunchtime, after lunch, in the evening? Why? Because He wants them to remember. He wants them to remember. And He goes even further. Look at what He says in verse 8. You shall bind them on a sign, as a sign on your hand, and that shall be on your frontals and on your forehead. And not only that, verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? So that the generation that comes after and their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will know of God's faithfulness. They will know of God's promises. They will know of His goodness. They will know of His grace. Our God is faithful. But if we forget his faithfulness, it's easy, it's easy to forget how faithful God was. And for us to be consumed with ourself. This monument was intended 
to be both a contemporary reminder of God's help, but also a reminder of God's help throughout history. That Samuel reminds the Israelites that do you remember Abraham? Do you remember how God was with Abraham, how he called him out of the land of the Chaldeans, and how he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he sent him out into a land that was not his own. And he promised to give him a son. And he gave him Isaac. And to Isaac he gave Jacob. And to Jacob he gave twelve sons. And while, while Jacob and all of his sons were about to die in the, midst of the, in the midst of the famine in Israel, that God sent him, God sent him Joseph, who had been in prison, who had been in Potiphar's house, who had been in prison, and who was now serving in Pharaoh's court. And as they went to Egypt begging for help, who did they go before? Joseph. And God faithfully protected Israel from the famine. And then when they became slaves in Egypt, how God faithfully, through Moses, delivered them and they were able to come out of slavery. And while they were in the wilderness, how God protected them in the wilderness. How God gave them a cloud by day to protect them from the sun. How He gave them fire by night to protect them from the cold. How He gave them manna in the wilderness. How their clothes did not wear out. How God provided for and protected for them in the wilderness. And then when they entered into the promised land, how God gave them the promised land. How He went and battled on their behalf. How He tore the walls of Jericho down. How when they went into Ai, how God gave them deliverance as they went into the promised land. How God how God made the sun stand still so that they could have victory. How God sent hail to defeat the Amorites so that they could have victory. God reminds them constantly of His faithfulness. And we see in the judges how through judge after judge and Shamgar and and Othaniel and Ehud, how God delivers over and over and over again. And he says in Joshua, I'm sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, he says, set up a monument. God, my stone, my rock, my foundation is my help. And this is what he says, and this is interesting. Verse 12, he says, Thus far, the Lord has helped me. Some of your versions may read, Up until now, the Lord has helped me. And many of us may ask the question, if we are astute readers of the text, we say, well, preacher, don't you remember chapter 4? Don't you remember whenever they sent the Ark of the Covenant in and, and, and God completely wiped them out? And don't you remember in chapter 2 whenever you had the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and, and bad things were happening? There was immorality and adultery and, and idolatry and all kinds of bad things. And don't you remember chapter, chapter 6 whenever Israel goes up to, to, to look at the Ark and 50,000 men die? How is this God helping them? How is this the assistance? How is this God's providential help? Why do we assume that God's help is always positive? Was it not to their benefit? Was it not to Israel's benefit that they were made helpless? That they could cry out to God? Was it not to Israel's benefit that God would reveal the immorality and the idolatry and the leadership so that the, leader, the wicked leadership could be removed from them? 
Was it not to Israel's benefit? Was it not to Israel's benefit that, that, that they experienced the discipline and the chastisement of the Lord in order to bring them back into obedience? Growing up, growing up, there were many times that I experienced uh, the love of my father through uh, the rod of correction. And at the time, I did not, at the time, I, I, I didn't understand, I didn't know why my father's hand was so hard, but now that I'm a dad, now that I'm a father, I understand what Solomon said, that foolishness is in the heart of the child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. You know, the psalmist said this, in Psalm 119, verse 71, he said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Why do we think that the blessings of God only come in the form of positive blessings? Sometimes God boxes us up with our helplessness. Sometimes God causes affliction. Sometimes God causes difficulty, hardship, and and trials to come upon our life so that we may learn what it means to trust and to rest in Him and to be helpless before Him that we have nowhere else but to cry out. It was helpful to know the bitter taste of sin. It was helpful for Israel to experience the consequences of idolatry. It was helpful for Israel to experience the pain and the hardship that came from immorality. It was helpful for Israel to have the ungodly leadership removed. But they must not forget. One of the things that that we cherish the most in our household and our family is family vacations. I think that, that, that it's those moments where you leave the world behind and it's just you and your children and your spouse and you can really, you can build relationships, you can fortify memories and, and my wife does such a good job, I, I, I make fun of her all the time about the 100,000 pictures that she takes. And, and she's constantly snapping pictures and constantly forcing us to get in these pictures. And, and I'm like, would you just live in the moment, quit taking all these pictures? But then we get home, and she, she chronicles everything. And, and we've been to Disney World a couple times, and some of those times we've been to Disney World, my children are, are so young that there's no possible way that they can remember. The first time we went to Disney World, Nicholas was nine months old. And, and there's no possible way he can remember anything from our first trip yet because he looks through the books and he looks through the pictures he talks about whenever we went to disney world whenever he was a baby and whenever whenever he rode dumbo and whenever he saw mickey mouse and whenever he did all those things and why it's because he has a physical reminder to show him that this is what happened and we do this in fact i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, put a couple pictures up here uh this is this is my wife's family, uh, and this is, this is Natalie uh, with the little boy haircut, and this is Haley in the front with the other little boy haircut, and that's Jake as a baby, and this is Natalie's grandfather and grandmother. I, I, I never knew, I never knew uh, Natalie's grandmother, but because of all the pictures I've seen and because of all the stories I've heard, I feel like I know her. 
I feel like I know her. And, and, and I can look back and, and we can laugh and we can, we can look at the, you know, like how in the world did our parents let us cut our hair like that? And we can laugh and we can, we can joke. But, but we remember. We remember what it was like. The next picture uh, is a picture of our family at our, uh, at one of our first beach trips. And you see, you know, this was before my sister was married. This was before my brother and his wife had any children. And, you know, my dad there, I think that was the first time uh, that he had been uh, in just a white T-shirt with a V-neck. I don't, I don't know what was going on there. Uh, but but this, is, this is a picture. And we remember. We look back and we remember, you know, he fussed and complained the whole time about taking this picture. And why we have to go down to the beach in, in, in our blue jeans. I mean, good grief. Go down to the beach in blue. That, that doesn't make any sense. But, but we look back and we remember. And this is, next picture is on one of our camping trips with our kids. And Anna had her little, little pink boots. And she goes walking out into the creek. And, and they, the water got about knee high. And the, boot, the water filled up the boots. And we took the boots off. And, and the boots were pretty pointless at that point. But, but, but we remember these, these trips. And this next picture, this last picture, is a picture of my little Italian princess with her uh, mafia grandfather. Uh, and and, and we, we look back and we remember. And we remember how she was in you know, this Italian festival. And, and, and we laugh and we, we look back at these family pictures. And they jog our memory. And years from now, when, when I'm old, when, that, when, when Anna is a mom and a grandma, she'll be able to pull these pictures back. And she'll be able to say, one time I was in a, a, a festival, an Italian festival, and I got to take a picture with my grandfather. And, and we'll remember. Church, God told Samuel, set up a monument. And he told him so. Because it's important for us to remember. It is important for us to remember. Why? Because there are going to be times in our life when we look around and it appears to us that God has forgotten us. It appears to us that all of the circumstances in our life are, are falling down around us. That, 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 that the enemy is having his heyday. That, that the world is beating upon us and is destroying us. And the world is going to kick you in the teeth. And you're going to be sitting on the second story of a, of a neighbor's house with 15 dogs and, pe- and 7 people. And you're going to be thinking. And there's, there's, there's 4 feet of water in your house. And you're thinking, okay, I, I, I don't know what's happening. And, and, and there's going to be a time in your life whenever... You go to the doctor and you get tragic news that that you've got cancer or someone you love has cancer or you're going to get a phone call that one of your loved ones has passed away unexpectedly and you're going to be encountered with despair. And when you are encountered with despair, we are called to remember. We are called to pull out God's Word and flip through the photo book that is His promises. And read how God has been faithful through the years, how God has reminded His people over and over and over and over again, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We are called to remember His faithfulness. We are called to remember His grace. And this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we do.
There's a reason Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Because even when the world kicks you in the teeth, even whenever everything seems as bad as it can possibly be, Jesus said, I love you so much so that I would give my life for you. This do in remembrance of me. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what it is. It's us looking back in the photo book, in the photo album of history and saying that God loves you so much that He shed His red, rich, royal blood on a rugged Roman cross that you might have life eternal. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus and in Him alone, you shall have eternal life. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are looking back through the photo album of God's grace, saying, remember, remember what He has done. This morning, maybe, maybe you can't remember what He's done for you because you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. If that's you this morning, in just a few moments, I want to invite you to come and do just that. This morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, We want to invite all of those who have trusted in Jesus, who followed Him in baptism to partake in the Lord's Supper. But you know, the Scripture is very very plain and very clear that we are to take the Lord's Supper with the right heart attitude. And if there is unconfessed sin in your life, or if there is a broken relationship in your life, maybe you need to spend time before getting, getting your heart right. Maybe you need to spend time before in confession. Maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe you need to grab somebody with you and say, come and pray with me. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. God, may we not forget. May we not forget your faithfulness. May we not forget your goodness. When life kicks us in the teeth, may we scroll back through the testimony of your goodness. And remember that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, you remain faithful for you cannot deny yourself. May we be drawn to the cross of Calvary to remember your fond affection for us and how Jesus died for me. This morning, if you need to give your life to Maybe you've been trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. Maybe you've been trying to to get your life together. God has called you this morning. He has spoken to your heart. He's telling you to give your life to Jesus. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe you just need to come to this altar to pray. Maybe you need to bring someone with you. As we sing the song of invitation, may this morning, may you do business with God. It's in Jesus' name we pray.